0: Well, we have completed our series on the letter of James, and uh, we are kicking off a new series uh, this, this week titled On Mission, and we are going to be spending the next four weeks together looking at the mission of God for his church. Uh, it's not just a mission for Montgomery, it's not just a mission for us as individuals, but, but a mission for his church as a whole. And on Sunday, November 22nd, we're going to conclude this series uh, with a 50th anniversary worship gathering in here, where 50 years ago, on November 21st, 1965, they held their first services uh, here in this room. And so uh, we are taking an opportunity to talk about the last 50 years, uh, but more importantly, we're going to look to what the next 50 years can look like this congregation. So you're not going to want to miss these four weeks as we talk about the mission of God and work uh, more specifically till we get to that November 22nd to talk about the mission of Montgomery. What's next for us? Uh, What are we doing as a church? And so it's going to be an exciting few weeks as we gear up toward that 50th anniversary. As we think about this phrase, on mission, we've got to start by defining some terms, right? We've got to look and see what does this word mission mean. When I use the word mission, there's several things that can pop into mind. You may think of something like a, a missionary work of some sort, uh, where ch- churches go locally or globally on mission trips. Uh, maybe it's some sort of organization that does church planting or, or, or sends people for certain works. Um, the word missions brings to mind something that happens by sending someone somewhere else. And that's what we think of when we think of missions. It's a, it's a subcommittee that sends people to something else, to some other continent, some other place. But another thing that might come to mind, especially if you are in corporate management of some sort, you think of this word mission as something very non-religious. You think of it as something like a, a purpose or a goal. We think of a mission statements. A corporate mission that says, this is why we exist as an organization, and it's usually some catchy little slogan or something like that of of why this organization exists. And so when we talk about being on mission, we have to define this statement. What is the mission that we're talking about? Whose mission is it? Is it a clever catchphrase, or is it something that's unique to a certain congregation or, or a certain denomination? Is it something that's unique to a certain location? Or is it God's mission that we're a part of? And so, as we think about being on mission, we're being on God's mission His purpose, His vision for what the church should be, His purpose for all of creation. John Stott said it this way, mission arises from the heart of God himself and is communicated from his heart to ours. Mission is the global outreach of the global people of a global God. And so when we think about a a global people, a global outreach, oftentimes we tend to think about the globe being somewhere else and we forget that we're part of that globe. Like, we're on that same sphere. And so when we talk about global outreach, that happens in these pews and outside of these doors and in this neighborhood and in this city and in this state and in this country and in this continent and into other continents. It's not just somewhere else. And so as we think about being on mission, we have two different words here that we can kind of Pick apart a little bit, a little bit of an English lesson maybe. We have missions with a plural, an S at the end, missions, and mission. And so when you think of mission, singular, it's broad and all-encompassing. It's it's similar to the word science. Science. The word science can be applied to a lot of different disciplines. It's very broad. Science is just this generic concept that includes any kind of discovery and experimentation and exploration. It's a, it's a, it's a certain way of thinking about things. That's what science is. And then we think about missions with an S. Missions is something different, just like sciences is something different. Sciences it has this vast array of things. There's physical sciences and social sciences and life sciences. And so there's missions that we have projects for. We go to Africa for mission projects, but the mission is something that is much bigger and all-encompassing of what we do here, what we do there, and everything in between. And so for most of us, when we use this word mission, Historically, we use that word to be that that segmented thing that goes on somewhere else. A missionary is somebody that we support to go to a different place. And we don't think about the mission of God being in this place. And so we're going to be talking about the mission of God for this place and all places. But to really understand what the mission of God is, we first have to take, take a step back and think about the story of God. We spent 31 weeks going through the story a year ago, where we went through Genesis to Revelation looking at what the overarching story of God is. What is he communicating to us? By, by looking at all of the story, we're able to get a picture of what God's mission for us is what his purpose is for us we look at scripture as one continuous story and all of scripture works together to form god's story and it's a story that we're all a part of it's our story there are four major sections of the story of scripture we start with creation Where in the beginning, God creates heaven and earth, he creates us, and it's it's in this story that we discover our identity of who we are. Where did we come from? Why do we exist? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to not be human and be God? We gain our value and our meaning and our purpose from this story, Genesis chapter 1 through 2. The story of creation provides our foundational values of who we are. We are made in the image of God. That's what we were designed for. That's what we were designed to be. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we get to the fall, where man becomes smarter, so they think, than God. They want to be God. They're disobedient to God. And that brings the separation between God and humans. That there is now a brokenness in the relationship, and and evil and sin make their way into God's perfect creation. And so we see in these, these chapters 3 through 11, we see that humans are growing more and more alienated from God because they have rejected God's goodness. They have rejected His plan. They have rejected His authority. And then the largest portion of Scripture gets into the redemption story. Redemption is where God doesn't leave us in that fallen state. He doesn't leave us in that brokenness, but he pursues a relationship with us. He seeks his people. He forms a people. And so he calls Abraham out of his homeland and sends him to form a new nation that will be a blessing to all others. And so Abraham follows obediently. And so God sets Abraham aside to be a blessing to all nations. That's the promise that's given to him. But through a series of very unfortunate events, the people of of Israel that he has formed are are put into slavery in Egypt. And so now they're living as slaves. They're not living out this promise of blessing. And God calls Moses in to come and be a deliverer of his people. And so he comes in and, and, and he, he fights against Pharaoh and God frees his people. And there's, there's incredible imagery and story there about the people leaving Egypt, being delivered from Egypt by God. And they come to a place called Mount Sinai, and God enters into a new covenant with Israel and gives them a new law, a new, a new way of being. He wants them to be his representatives in the world. He wants them to be distinctive and set apart. But it doesn't take long for us to realize that the people of Israel could not and would not live by the law that God had given And so we continue through the Old Testament to the stories of the prophets that that point to a day where the blessing will be fulfilled, where the covenant will be fulfilled through a Messiah. A Messiah will come and will make things right. A Messiah will come and bring salvation to the world. And so then we get to the New Testament where God sends his own Son to dwell among us, the incarnation of God himself that his son would come and live a human life, be born and would die and would be buried and would be resurrected from the dead. Galatians 4, chapter 4, verse 4 gives us a summary of the story. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you were his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you're God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And so the coming of Jesus inaugurates this new presence of the kingdom of God, this new reign of God. In Jesus, God's reign enters into the story Like never before, Jesus comes and lives are changed, values are changed, priorities are changed. Radical challenge comes to the existing structures of power. We're called into a new way of living. The followers of Jesus continue to proclaim this message to others. They proclaim this message of good news, the message of the kingdom of God. Acts 28, Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so we see a new movement of redemption happening. The cross and the resurrection bring us into the center of this entire story. Here is God's answer to the brokenness of the fall. Here's God's answer to the destruction of the evil. And so the cross and the resurrection reverse the effects of the fall. And this becomes the center point of our story. The cross is central to God's mission. And so if we were to be on mission, the cross has to be central to what we do. After the resurrection, Jesus calls together his followers, he calls together his disciples, and he he calls them to carry on this mission that God has given them. And Jesus leads to the gift of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost and to the birth of the church, which is the age that we're in now as we continue to follow out the call to go and make disciples. And so the church becomes the fulfillment of the hope of Israel, expanding to include the Gentiles. And so that, becomes, that is the, the third phase of the story, the redemption phase of the story that we're continuing to live out as part of this redemption story that the church was put in place to bring redemption of God's people. And then the fourth phase is new creation where the return of Christ will bring this grand finale to the story, the redemption um, and inauguration, the fulfillment of the full story. And Judgment will be made against evil, and it will be destroyed. And it's there that lies the new heaven and the new earth. And so we have a, hu- a future hope, a future, a, a new hope, a new creation. And so that promise gives us value. That promise gives us worth for all that we do now, knowing of the promise that is to come. And so, how we respond to the present, how we respond to what we do now, is impacted by what we believe about the future. Revelation 21 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the, or, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So there is the entire story of scripture. All of the Bible wrapped up in a very, very brief and concise way. And there's lots more discussion and lots to expand on each and every one of those sections. But that gives us an idea of the overarching story of Scripture. So when we say on mission or when we say God's mission for us, it has to be interpreted through that lens, through the story. And we're a part of that story. We're in that redemption phase of that story. We continue that story on. It's what we're part of. And so it's it's a story that began long before we were born, long before the 50-year history of this congregation, long before anything we can imagine. It happened at the very beginning, the creation of humans at the very beginning of time that God created in His image with a desire to have a relationship with his people. And we see the work of redemption happening, the work of bringing people back into that relationship with God throughout the story, and it continues through today. He calls together his disciples to walk out his mission, to carry that on. So this is our story, and we are bearers of that story. And we each have a responsibility to carry that story with us. And so as we look at this entire narrative, this story of Scripture, we see a couple of themes start to emerge. There's one theme that, that, that really sticks out, and this is the idea of, uh, of covenant. And another one is this idea of kingdom. And we've talked about different components of this over different series Covenant in the Old Testament was this idea uh, of of a a commitment between God and the people. So there's a covenant that's made with Noah, a covenant that's made with Abraham and, and David. And God also initiates covenant with the people of Israel through the law given to Moses. And so we have this covenant relationship between God and people. And the people have a part to play in that covenant, and God has a part to play in that covenant. That's the agreement that's made between them. But in Jeremiah Jeremiah 31, we're promised a new covenant. That a new covenant will come, and that will come in the form of Jesus. Jesus comes in and fulfills the Old Testament covenant. Everett Ferguson defines covenant this way. He says, a covenant based on the promises of God and requiring the appropriate conduct by the people in response describes the relationship as love relationships. A covenant requires a people with whom it is entered into, and that people may be characterized as covenant people. The church is the new covenant community. So a a covenant requires people who enter into that relationship with God. They are a covenant people, and they have certain things to do based on that covenant. And so Jesus comes to earth in this unique father-son relationship with God. And through the work of the cross, we're invited into the same kind of covenant relationship. That now this father-son relationship becomes the relationship between me and God, between you and God. We have this opportunity for this intimate relationship with Him. The new covenant relationship with God totally transforms who we are and what we're about. It gives us a whole new identity and gives us a whole new way of being. We can look at it this way. We've used this in in some of our other uh, teachings in the past, but we have this triangle here with Father, identity, and obedience. God the Father is up at top. He uh, He is in this perfect relationship with Jesus. Jesus has this radical and this deep, intimate relationship with God. And because of what Jesus does his disciples are able to have that same intimate relationship with the Father. And joining, and we're able to join into that relationship. And so he draws people to himself and builds a community of people to follow him in this relationship with the Father who want to become more like Him and enter more into the realities of the covenants that Jesus shares with His Father. They want more of that relationship. And because of that new relationship, we're given a new identity. Our identity is formed out of the relationship that we have with the Father. We're children, we're heirs, we're new creations, we are part of a new family. We're given a new identity, given a new name because of the Father. And so with that, we gain access to all the things that Jesus himself has access to. And so the New Testament teaches us that when we are baptized, we embrace this new identity. We die to ourselves; We come up new, in a new form, as new people. And so Jesus connects uh, connects us with God. And God's commitment to us is written in the blood of Jesus. He gives us that. We are new. We are changed. We have a new identity. And so, who we are is defined not by what we do, but who our Father is. That becomes our identity. And so with that new identity comes a responsibility. The covenant relationship is two-sided, that that if God forms a covenant with us, there is a responsibility of the people to fulfill their side of the covenant. And so we have obedience as a part of this relationship. And as we've talked through over the last several weeks going through James, this this difference between faith and works and how how the two interplay, we we have a new covenant that, that is is written on our hearts and calls us into a certain way of being. And because of our faith in God, we act in a certain way. The Holy Spirit fills us and gives us life, making us free to obey God as, as, God, obey God as a reflection of our new identity. We obey because of who we are, not to earn who we are. Obedience is the most consistent way of expressing our new identity. If we are formed into something new, we will behave in a different way. If we truly believe, we will act in a different way, as we talked about in James. And so obedience is an act of love toward the Father. It's not an act to receive from the Father. And so as we look at the covenant relationship that we have with, with the Father, who the Father is, and how the Father views us defines the entire relationship. We have a new identity, a new calling on our lives, and are called to be obedient in that identity. The second major theme through, through the story is this idea of the kingdom of God. The kingdom. Uh, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven interchangeably. Uh, you won't see that phrase in the Old Testament, but the, the concept of king and power and authority show up all over the Old Testament. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, Yours, Lord, is the, greatest, the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. And so we see this authority that, that God takes over his people throughout the Old Testament. and In the New Testament, Jesus starts talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. And, and we've talked about how the kingdom of God is really the, the reign of God or the rule of God. Is, is where God is at work and taking action. And so associated with the rule of God comes this idea of power that gives an idea of what his reign looks like. We see throughout the the New Testament these different places where where power is associated with the reign of God. The word miracles is, is the same word that's used for power. We see that there's power in the resurrection. We see that there's power in the Holy Spirit. We see that there's power in the gospel. The idea of power is always associated with the reign and the rule of God. And so as we think about the reign and the rule of God, we've got this this already but not yet kind of concept where where we're already in the beginning of the reign of God, that he is at work and he is is ruling. But until everybody comes into an acknowledgement and a submission to that rule, it is not yet fully fulfilled. It's not yet complete. And so we can summarize this idea of kingdom with this graphic. That we have the king who is in the position of authority. That, that God sends his son to be king. And it wasn't the king that the people expected. We're getting ready to head into the Christmas season. And we're going to be talking about the coming of the king. And they were anticipating this Messiah that would have an earthly reign. And that was not what God sent. God sent a different kind of king. He sent a servant king. The kingdom of heaven is for the subjects, not for the benefit of the king like an earthly kingdom. He's a servant king who offers himself as a doorway into a relationship with God. He opens that up for us. And he gives us a future worth dying for. A future worth fighting for. The king of heaven has has taken on flesh and become one of us. He has chosen to walk among us to reveal the future that he's prepared for us. A future that we can taste now if we will surrender to his kingship. And so the king we follow does not uh, call us simply to bow down and worship. He also calls us to fully reflect him as king. He calls us to represent him, to be his ambassadors. He leaves us in charge in a way, which is pretty crazy. That he will, will, will leave us the keys to the kingdom and expect us to do something with that. He gives us the authority of the kingdom. He delegates that to us. He calls us to carry out His work on His behalf. And so the the, the same authority that is given to Jesus is the same authority that is given to us. And that's what we operate in. We're commissioned to act on His behalf. Disciples of Jesus give what they have received. They give the healing. They give the forgiveness. They give all that they've been given to others. But we're not left to do it alone. Jesus says he will send a helper. He will will send an advocate for us. Jesus gives us the power we need to do the job that he's called us to. He doesn't leave us powerless, and our power comes from the Holy Spirit. Our power comes from the message of the gospel. The the Spirit of God himself connects us to the kingdom which we long for. Hebrews 6, 4 through 5 tells us that, that it is by him that we taste the powers of the coming age. And so we have a king who has delegated his authority to us, To operate in his kingdom, to run his kingdom for him. And he empowers us through the Spirit to make that happen. And so, as we we look at both of these ideas of covenant and kingdom, how often do we get them backwards? How often do we operate in our own power to be able to try to do something for the king? as opposed to, to tapping into the authority that's been given us and the power that's been given to us to act on his behalf. How often do we try to create an identity for ourselves that's not rooted in the love of the Father? How often do we, we try to check off the list of things to be obedient to in an effort to win the approval of God? But there's a very clear direction for each of these. If we're to be a church on mission, that means we are acknowledging that God is at work, that he is writing a story, that he's continuing to write that story, and we are a part of that story. He has a purpose for this church. He has a purpose for each of us as individuals to be a part of that story. His mission is revealed to us through the overarching story of Scripture, and it's a story that we're a part of, and in that story that we we see that we are a covenant people. We are a people who are in this intimate relationship with the Father. We're formed into something new because of that relationship with the Father, and we're given a new identity, and we're called to carry out His work because of of who we are now. We're called in to the work of God, into the mission of God, because of who the Father is. And we're also a kingdom people. We're people who are, are following a king, a king that this uh, unlike anything this world has ever seen, a king who is humble, a king who is a servant, a king who sacrifices his own life on behalf of the people. And we're called into that kingdom and and submission to that king gives us the authority to act on his behalf. And so we continue the work that he started. We continue the work of Jesus because we are given that authority and we're given the power of the Spirit to do all that he's called us to do. So this gives us a framework to be thinking about what does it mean to be a church church? What does it mean to be a disciple? And so we're going to continue to unpack this each week as we get more and more specific to what it means for us as individuals, what it means for us as a church. But this is the backdrop in which the mission of the church exists as we look at being on mission as a church and as disciples. Let's go ahead and be standing We're going to spend some time in prayer, Uh, spend some time encouraging one another, uh, praying for one another. Uh, If if you have a prayer need, if you uh, have an illness, if you uh, are looking for a job, if you are are in any kind of need where, where you want the shepherds to pray for you or you want somebody else to pray for you, this is the time to do that. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of a pause from the praise team so we can just have, have a moment to just be praying. You can be praying as individuals. You can gather up and pray as a small group or as a family. Uh, seek someone out and go pray for someone. Give that gift of prayer uh, by asking what you can be praying for. Uh, but let's, uh, let's go ahead, have the shepherds come forward, and uh, we'll spend a few few moments of silence and prayer, and then the praise team will... We'll sing, uh, sing for us, and we'll, we'll close out that way. Um, if you have not yet entered into a covenant relationship with God, and it's time, you believe, and it is time for you to enter into that covenant relationship with God uh, through baptism this morning, we would love to, to do that with you this morning as well. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for uh, your story that we're a part of, God, we pray that you will uh, continue to speak to us. God, as we reflect right now, we pray that uh, we will hear what you have to say to us. God, give us the courage to respond in in the way that you've called us to. God, we give this prayer time to you now, praying that you will act, praying that you will, will move, praying that you will heal, that you will restore, that you will renew. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.